Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, we'll continue with our hymn of the month, Not All the Blood of Beasts. Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. But Christ the heavenly Lamb takes all our sins away. A sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. My faith would lay its hand on that dear head of thine. While as a penitent I stand and there confess my sin. My soul looks back to see the burden thou didst bear when hanging on the cursed tree I know my guilt was there. Believing we rejoice to see the curse removed We bless the Lamb with cheerful voice and sing his bleeding love. We'll continue with the catechism slash Bible memory work from the table of duties uh, addressed to widows this time from 1 Timothy. The widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. 1 Timothy 5, 5 to 6. All right, and uh, let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. And Luther's morning prayer, I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger, and I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings in life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, 
that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. The Almighty and Merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. All right. Kids go off to Sunday school. The, uh, where'd it go? I lost my sheet. Heaven of the month, wherever it is. Here it is. I just want to draw your attention to the um, last two stanzas. This is the last uh, Sunday we'll have this as the hymn of the month, although we will be keep continue to sing this on the uh, midweeks, the Lenten midweeks. So um, if you don't have it me- quite memorized yet, you maybe you'll have it memorized by by the Easter. Um, I, I realized when we were just singing it, I, I think I have it mostly memorized at this point from the Sundays and then and Wednesdays. So... Anyhow, um, my soul looks back to see the burden thou that it's bare. When hanging on the cursed tree, I know my guilt was there. And then believing we rejoice to see the curse remove, we bless the lamb with cheerful voice and sing his bleeding love. The the things that ties those two stanzas together is this idea of looking and seeing, right? So we look, my soul looks back to see, and then we rejoice to see the curse remove. And both those are describing looking at the work of Jesus on the cross. And the thing I want to say about that is that it is central in the Christian life. And the book of Hebrews talks this way too. We were we uh, talked about that a little bit on Wednesday night. That uh, we should look at and see and consider and think about and gaze upon a lot of hymnody speaks this way, the crucifixion. Um, we ended last Sunday with the hymn, um, Jesus, I Will Ponder Now, which is a, kind of a Holy Week hymn, but it's uh, it's appropriate during Lent that we're, one of the things we're doing during Lent and during Holy Week especially is pondering on the crucifixion, right? That, because the crucifixion, and, and resurrection of Jesus, I mean, there, you can't separate them. But specifically here, the crucifixion of Jesus is the central thing about our faith, right? I mean, that is, that's it, right? That is where sin was paid for. That is the heart of the gospel. And uh, so as Christians, we think about that. We, we look, our soul looks back to see that, Right? Um, the burden thou didst bear when hanging on the cursed tree, I know my guilt was there. And believing, right? So by faith, we apprehend the gifts that were won on that cross, right? We look back in faith, believing we rejoice to see the curse remove. We bless the lamb with cheerful voice and sing his bleeding love. And um, yeah, I think like even liturgically, right? We we do this um, when we have the crucifix and it's i mean we have we have two crucifixes right one right smack dab in the center of the altar right and then one um for the processional right by right by i I like how how it's positioned now actually um where it's right next to the pulpit right that because that's what we preach we preach christ crucified right and and then when we process and, and recess in and out of the sanctuary, right? We we gaze upon the cross, right? We look, our soul looks to see, uh, literally in that case. So 
anyway, I just wanted to point that idea out there in the hymnody. Any thoughts? Or, yeah, Steve. Yeah, also, I know when I make my, my video from that angle, it shows up the cross, and then, of course, when we had the two baptisms, the last few weeks, the Christ candle was right there in it, too. So mm-hmm. it kind of made a nice uh, yeah. comparison. Right, and the Christ candle, um, liturgically, is symbolic of the resurrection. Right, so traditionally, it's only lit during Easter and baptisms, right? Which baptisms are resurrection days, right? Because uh, you, you, if if you've uh, died with Christ by going down into the waters, you will certainly be raised with Him, right? So you rise up out of the waters, and uh, the so you got the cross and the resurrection there, right? So i love that east easter vigil is coming up too of course right and easter vigil we light the christ candle um outside um from the fire of creation and then we we bless the candle and and bring it into the sanctuary for the for the coming year um very nice things here okay um in the uh one thing i i did want to mention the catechism really quickly is we got this verse about widows um which i didn't even really think about this until we read this right now but uh we got this grief group that started yesterday um i encourage anyone who's who's gone through any grief in their life or is still grieving of of losing anyone in their life or anything like that um to join us it was actually uh it was a a really good time i um i mean i didn't think it was going to be bad or anything but it was um more more helpful than i would have thought or imagined, I guess. And um, it went really well. So uh, I got, I should have used this first. Uh, I mean, there's obviously plenty to still talk about. We're going to meet every month, but um, th- this is a good verse, right? Because the, that um, it is interesting, right? You don't normally think of warning widows, right? Normally you think of comforting widows. But Paul does warn widows, right? Not to live for pleasure. Uh, but... To put their hope in God, and that that is something that came up a little bit in the grief group, right? Is that uh, when we grieve, right, we we put our hope in God alone and in the resurrection, right? We cannot put our hope in the pleasure of this world, and um, otherwise we're we're gonna be lost. So anyway, an interesting verse there. So. I just wanted to make a plug for the grief group, I guess. Shameless plug. All right. So, uh, the book of Daniel. We're going to try our hardest not to get lost in the book of Daniel for, you know, five weeks or something like that. No promises. Um. But we'll try and just give an overview of it. We're trying we're trying to stick to broad stroke overviews. Of course, the book of Daniel of we, we kind of had this with Ezekiel too. We definitely had this with Ezekiel. But the book of Daniel is one of these prophets that is intimately connected to the book of Revelation. And therefore, pe- people have a lot of thoughts and questions about it. And not only is it intimately connected to the book of Revelation, which makes it – people have a lot of thoughts and questions about it. But additionally, 
the visions in Daniel are quite extraordinary. Specifically, excuse me, the last half of the book, chapter 7 through 12, are quite extraordinary. Um, and by extraordinary, I mean out of extraordinary, right? Out of the ordinary. And so they, they're very interesting visions that happen and stories that happen in the book of Daniel. So uh, for that reason, it is easy to get a little bit caught up into it. Um, and I had to stop myself when I was preparing this Bible study and say, no, I can't, I can't go through all these passages, right? Cause we'll be, it'll just turn into a Daniel study for like three months. Um, so I'm going to try and stick to a broader overview with that said, let's kind of follow our main, by the, by the way, do, does everyone like this style of studying the, the books of the Bible, the overview where I've been doing introductory matters, main themes, outline and key passages? I find it a very helpful way for me to organize like the the books of the Bible into like, okay, what's in basically, you know, an hour or so of teaching, what's the the overview of this book? So if um I, I I realize I should maybe ask that because I've just been doing it and no one said anything. So <laughs> um all right, so just first of all, kind of names and dates. Um, so Daniel, uh, I'm actually going to put this under themes, but uh, Daniel means God is my judge. And that is kind of one of the themes of the book, right? So that's what Daniel means, is God is my judge. And we'll see how that ends up being one of the themes of the book, that um, God is ultimately the one who's going to judge all matters, in the life of Daniel and his friends. Okay. But uh, let's let's do the introductory matters as well first. Uh, and it's kind of an introductory matter too because that's what Daniel means. But uh, we have the kind of date for this. If we look at um, 1 verse 1, uh, I'll give you the exact dates, which are somewhere between 605 and 536 BC. But if we look at 1 verse 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Okay, so we know exactly during what reign, which means we know basically the years that Daniel was written. Um, because when you get this, one of these things that's the reign of a king, uh, you know when it's written. And this happens with the besiegement of Judah. So we're kind of back on the Judah side of things, back on the southern uh, kingdom side of things. But Daniel um, is written after, remember, the siege of, Ju of Jerusalem in, in Judah took multiple sieges, right? And it, it came in waves, right? But the downfall of the temple, so this is before the downfall of the temple, right? This is um, after the first siege, so if you look on the um, in your charts, uh, you have Daniel um, uh, kind of off to the side, um, living in Babylon, uh, taken into captivity after the first siege, but before the downfall of of Jerusalem. Right. So um, I, I think he's actually listed on the Assyria side because he's not in Judah. Right, he's he's in captivity. So, 
Um, anyway, that that's kind of where we're at here. So, and and if we keep reading, we find out. So this is the first uh, the first wave of the Babylonian captivity. And if we keep reading, uh, we find out if we go down to like verses six and seven. Now, from among those of the sons of Judah were, uh, well, let me uh, back up here a little bit. Okay. Okay, so verse 3, the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of the eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men, in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted, blah, 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 uh, to serve in the king's palace. And then we go down to verse 6, among those of the sons of Judah, so some of the, the people that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon at the time, uh, instructed that to bring into Babylon and he brings the cream of the crop first, right? So, um, this is part of the downfall and the besiege of Judah is, and the way that Babylon did things is they would go into a place, siege it, and then they would take the most gifted and talented people out first, right? And so you, you're left with the, um, kind of the, the lower classes to fend for themselves there in the, in the city. And then, and then they kind of continue to go in and take take people from from that, All right? So they brought the cream of the crop into the into their palace to serve, right? To write and to to study and whatnot, and then they would take the lower classes and make them military. Okay, whenever they siege the place. So they brought in uh, some of these people, and the pe- of the sons that they brought in were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them, the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. So um, you've heard of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Now, the funny thing about Abednego um, is that it's not actually Abednego, but at some point everyone started saying Abednego, and I don't know why, but um, I'm always torn on what, what to say. I think I always just say Abednego because that's what everyone knows, but it should be Abednego. Abednego. That's actually how it's written. Um, and yeah, I the, it, it always, uh, it just kind of makes me laugh because it's kind of an inside joke, but I had this... Uh, Friend, a really good friend of mine in seminary, who on his vicarage, he was at a church that had this um, uh, retired pastor there, who was uh, very um, kind of an old, you know, strict German pastor, right? And um, he like chastised uh, my my buddy for uh, preaching. He preached on the fiery furnace, and he was like. You said it wrong. <laughs> you know? and, like, and then, and then I think he said it right some other time. And then the everyone in the congregation was like, "You said it wrong." <laughs> so, um, anyway, Abednego. I'll just say Abednego. But um, yeah. Anyhow, so that, yeah, that, this is the story though. This is the beginning of that story in some ways because. 
You have Daniel and his three friends who are brought to the king's palace and they are given these other names, right? So originally they were actually um, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Um, and it's funny, we, we use the Hebrew name for Daniel, but then we use the uh, Babylonian names for, for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But Daniel is given this Babylonian name, Belteshazzar, which is interesting because it's very similar to Nebuchadnezzar's son's name, Belshazzar, who shows up later in the book um, with the uh, writing on the wall. So uh, I don't know exactly what that connection is there, but um, it's kind of interesting. Daniel is given this kind of kingly name in some sense. Anyhow, so the these Daniel and his three friends are brought um, in, into the king's palace, and basically the rest of um, the book will maybe we'll jump over to the outline. Is that you have chapters um, one through seven? No, sorry, one through six are uh, stories about uh, Daniel and his three friends in in Babylon. And we'll go through kind of what those are. And then chapters 7 through 12 are visions of Daniel. So in some ways, although it's a very complex book, and it, when you think about the book of Daniel, I don't know what everyone's experience with the book of Daniel is. But to me, when I think about the book of Daniel, I, I think of it like a very daunting task to study because, because of the complexity of these visions especially. But in some ways, it is rather simple in its structure and outline that it's um, kind of stories about Daniel and his friends in Babylon, which are pretty easy to understand. And then these, and then uh, visions, right? So the visions are where it gets complicated. But it's not even really that long of a book. Um, the chapters are generally only about like 30 verses or so or less, um, some longer. But uh, it's only 12 chapters, right? So uh, it is not even that long, but, but the visions are complex. All right, final introductory matter is that chapters 2 through 7 are in Aramaic. And it's notable, um, I've probably mentioned this before in other various places, I'm sure I have, that most of the Old Testament, right, is, we, we almost always just say that it totally is because we don't have the time to go into these details but the Old Testament is basically written in the book of Hebrew, or in the language of Hebrew. All right? And the New Testament is written in the language of Greek, and specifically a version of Greek called Koine Greek. There are a few chapters in the Old Testament that are written in a cousin language of Hebrew, Aramaic. Now, Aramaic's not that different than Hebrew, but it is a little bit different. And um, it's notable 
um, for a couple reasons. One, it's it's interesting in Daniel, right? Because Daniel is this wise man, right? So Dan, like, um, you know, the three wise men in in the New Testament, uh, that Daniel and his three friends are put into that class in Babylon, right? If if you read there in chapter one, they're kind of hired to be uh, wise men from among the Hebrews. And so it's it's interesting that Daniel writes in this um, maybe a little bit more uh, complex or more just a different language, right, that he makes use of, of language in a different way. Uh, the But the other really notable thing is that chapters 2 through 7 um, – it, in some ways, is kind of a block. It's the so chapter one, as we are just kind of reading there, is more of this introduction about Daniel and his friends, and their position in in Babylon, and what happens when they initially get there. Chapter two begins these stories, and uh, most of those are written in Aramaic, and then chapter seven is the first vision of Daniel, which is one of a. a a major dream that Daniel has. Now, chapter in chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that Daniel is called to interpret, and Nebuchadnezzar's dream and Daniel's dream are parallel to one another. So, chapter two and chapter seven are parallel to one another, and that kind of forms a block in the text. And chapter two and seven are kind of key chapters to understand the book. So, and they connect. Uh, these two sections, right? So Daniel and the story of of Daniel and his three friends in Babylon and the visions. So uh, just worth noting, uh, just, I mean, if nothing else, when you go to some Bible trivia contest, you can win a prize that Daniel 2 through 7 are in Aramaic. I'm trying to remember the other, uh, there's like two other passages in the Old Testament that are written in Aramaic. Um and I just can't think of them off the top of my head right now. But, um, yeah, so so kind of interesting there. Um, also, maybe worth noting, just off the top of my head here, it's not in my notes, but in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, um, that the Septuagint is where we also get the Apocrypha. And in the Apocrypha, which came up in men's group last night, um, in the Apocrypha, there are some additions to Daniel as well, um, which are kind of more of these stories, uh, more of these stories about Daniel and his three friends. So um, those are those are pretty good um, as well. There's nothing wrong about them or heretical about them. Um, maybe they're not exactly historical, but uh, they're they're a pretty well-known story. Bell and the Dragon is one, and um, Well, I, the two two stories, Bell and the Dragon, but I think that's that's it. Anyway, um, all right. So that's kind of the introduction for the Book of Daniel. So main themes, like I said, God is my judge. Uh, faithfulness is maybe the biggest theme in the book. So da- the stories about Daniel and his three friends are really going to be about how Daniel and his three friends 
as you can remember from the the twos, there are two. This is this is one introductory thing. Um, I know we've been studying kind of parts of the Old Testament now for a while since we got into the Kings and Chronicles and divided kingdom that you don't learn in Sunday school, generally speaking, right? Um, I, this is my kind of theory is that in Sunday school, the, the Sunday school stories that kids learn are go from Genesis um, up until the time of like David and maybe up until the time of Solomon, right? But then you really don't learn about the kings and like the rest of the kings and chronicles and the divided kingdom and the captivities and uh, sometimes you get a little bit of the return from captivity, but um, for some reason we stop our our, our Sunday school lessons at da- at David for the most part. And I've I've always kind of found that weird because as we've seen over the last couple of years, so much of the Old Testament is the divided kingdom. Now, what what's in one thing notable about Daniel is that you do get two major Bible stories that are Sunday school stories, right? You get uh, the fiery furnace and you get Daniel in the lion's den, mm-hmm. right? So uh, we do get some maybe a little bit more familiar stories here in, in Daniel. But if you think about those two stories, which you do know, um, you you have the theme of faithfulness, right? That Daniel and his friends are called to be faithful and that faithfulness is going that, that perseverance of faithfulness is going to bring them blessing right and that they're going to um, secure secure life in Christ because of that also uh, persecution right going quite quite along with that this is a great book to study the idea of persecution and even the visions, right? So, of course, you can see persecution in the stories. And we'll talk about some of the other stories as well. But uh, even in the visions, right, we have the some of the main visions, like with Nebuchadnezzar's and Daniel's dreams, are about the downfall of the empires when, they, when they're persecuted. Right when or when the empires are persecuting God's people, how God brings those empires to to a downfall, and so uh, we even have some of that in those visions. Um, hope and suffering, right? So going along with faithfulness and persecution, these all kind of go together. That when God's people are being persecuted and when they're suffering, that they have a hope that is greater then uh, it's bigger than themselves, right? They have a hope outside of themselves. They have a hope in, uh, that's eternal in Christ. And then um, God's, what I kind of wrote down here is uh, God's kingdom, you could say, is greater than or versus uh, human kingdoms. Right, so we have the, these human kingdoms, spe- specifically the kingdom of Babylon in the stories, but then in the visions, even kingdoms that are going to come in the future. 
right? So we hear about the Medes and the Persians and the Romans that are going to come in the future and also fall. That God's kingdom is going to prevail against all earthly kingdoms. And that the the Messiah is going to be enthroned um, one day in a way that will usurp all kings of this earth. So some Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 language. And um, I have a I have a handout for when we get there about um, Daniel 7 and the um, Messiah's enthronement, which is quite interesting. Okay, and then finally, uh, these visions of Daniel, one of the things I want to put in themes is um, that we have these apocalyptic themes, these end-of-the-world visions of Daniel. And this is where we get into the Revelation stuff. And what I want to say now in general about the visions before we look at them in particularly, and we're actually only going to look at Daniel's dream. I, this is where I had to stop because if you start, start to go through all the visions, um, there's, there's basically, let's see, there's uh, a vision in 7, 8, 9, and then 10 through 12. So there's four major visions in at the in that last section of the book of Daniel, and they're just too much. Like I I wanted to do them all, but uh, we just don't have we just don't have time. So you're just gonna have to forgive me. We can go back and do them later, but um, it would be going past the point of an overview, I think, if we we tried to study them in detail. But, but what I want to say in general about these visions now is that there's always this kind of debate about, especially with the book of Revelation, about do these visions um, have something to do with something that happened in history or do they have to do with uh, something that will happen in history, something that maybe is happening now uh, or ha- happened in 1980 or happened in uh, – is going to happen in you know 2030 um, or do these only have to do with the uh, end of the world when Christ returns? Like where do these visions line up in history is kind of the question. And what I want to say is that when you read the book of Revelation, um, I so we really have to kind of study the book of Revelation for this as well. But when you read Daniel and Ezekiel and the book of Revelation, one of the key ideas that um, I think is important to understand those things is that uh, one – uh, ultimately, everything has to do with the return of Christ, right? So when we talk about apocalypse, which is a word for revealing or pulling back the curtain, and the book of Revelation, right? That's the same word. The It's the apocalypse of John or the revealing of John, the revelation, right? What's, what's being pulled back from his eyes. That ultimately... All of those things find their fulfillment in the return of Christ. 
that's where that's where they all find their final end, right? And we similarly how we've talked about the day of the Lord in the prophets before. Secondarily, however, there are themes and ideas and uh, prophecies that are what I would call cyclical, right? And the idea of cyclical is that it kind of repeats itself throughout history, right? So if I were to draw it, it would kind of look like this, where you, you're you kind of going down a tunnel, right? And you're looping back around and you're hitting these same kind of spots, right, in the story over and over again until you get to that final return of Christ, right? And so I think in some sense all three things are true, that there are immediate historical references to the visions that Daniel has, right? And he even tells you so, right? So when we get to some of the visions, this will make more sense when we get there, but he has this vision of four empires, right? And this is the the one that's kind of repeated between Nebuchadnezzar's dream and Daniel's dream, <laughs> that there are these four empires who are going to ultimately fall to one another. And Daniel at even one point tells you basically this is Babylon, Media, Persia, and Rome, right? So you can't deny that immediate historical reference, right? And, and I think in the same way in Revelation, um, people often deny it, but I, I don't – I'm very convinced that many of the things in Revelation – and I take an early dating to the book of Revelation. It's the only way it makes sense – is that um, many of the things in Revelation are referring to – the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, immediately, historically. That said, those things tend to repeat themselves throughout history, right? So um, there have been other empires that have fallen uh, within history that very much look like they in some way line up with Daniel's visions. And I think as empires continue continue to fall, they will line up with Daniel's visions. But ultimately, I think there will be the fall of empires that will precede Christ's imminent return. So you have, if you kind of think in those three ways, right, immediate historical reference, future historical reference, and the return of Christ, all three things can be true at once, Right? that the it's multifaceted in this way. Now, with that said, I think there's also a danger in trying to look um, at these things and line them up with exactly what's going on um, right now or within history. I mean, I think it's okay to take some kind of broad stroke views, but um, what we shouldn't do is, the da- the danger in this is to say, oh, look, this empire here is falling. That means Christ is coming back in this, probably in this year or whatever, or in this decade or whatever the case is. 
Um, and as we've seen many times throughout history, whenever someone starts to try and predict the return of Christ, they're almost always wrong. Right? I mean, they uh, they are always wrong because Christ hasn't come back yet. Right? So um, they're always wrong. So um, and and Scripture itself tells us, and Jesus tells us most importantly, don't try and figure out the time or day. Right? Just be prepared. That's the point. Be prepared. And that's actually the point of of some of the visions in some ways. Right? Is that as empires fall, you should always be prepared. Um, and it's not just the empires either. It's uh, other parts of the vision too. I'm just using that as an example. But um, all right. So I wanted to just mention that as kind of these apocalyptic visions. Um, there's maybe a threefold way to understand these, and we don't we don't have to sacrifice any of them, right? So we don't we don't have to try and allegorize the historical reference. Um, to also match it up with the book of Revelation, like they can both be true. Anyway, hopefully that makes some, some sense. It'll make more sense when we when we get to the dreams. Okay, so uh, outline, uh, we'll finish kind of doing this. So we had the two big sections. I just wanted to um, make uh, smaller sections here for uh, one through six. So chapter one is about the faithfulness um, of Daniel and his friends immediately when they get to Babylon. Chapter two is uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream and Daniel interpreting it and all of that. Chapter three is the fiery furnace. Chapters four to five are uh, Nebuchadnezzar and Belteshazzar's, um, not Belteshazzar, Belteshazzar is Daniel, Uh, Belshazzar is the son of Nebuchadnezzar. Um, Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar's uh, pride and downfalls, right, so... Nebel Pride, for short. And chapter 6 is uh, the lion's den. Okay. So these are the kind of main stories. Um, all right. So that's the, the kind of outline. And then 7 through 12 are the visions. And as I mentioned before, you have... Visions in 7, 8, 9, and then 10 through 12 is one long vision. All right. And this is a dream. This is uh, – what's what's in chapter 8? I can't remember. This is the dream. And then chapter 9 is the prayer of Daniel. And 10 through 12 is, is very much an apocalyptic vision where it's about the end of the end of the world basically um chapter eight is uh yes that's what it is the ram and goat and also in chapters eight and nine um notably uh gabriel shows up 
we're not going to talk about these visions, but uh, the angel Gabriel shows up to and help interpret um, his the prayer he prays. Gabriel shows up to give an answer to the prayer, and then actually Gabriel kind of gives the vision in chapter nine, and then chapter eight um, Gabriel interprets the vision to Daniel. So very interesting. There. All right. So chapter one, we'll go ahead and start there. Look at uh, verses 8 through 16, and this is uh, what you may have heard of before called the Daniel diet. Has anyone ever heard of that? No. Okay, so I grew up, you know, in evangelical land in uh, central Arkansas, and um, I had friends in high school who were part of these churches that would randomly, um, the youth groups would all do Daniel diets. Okay, so um, basically we'll explain what that is, but it's uh, basically just a more or less a vegan diet. Um, it's like no no dairy, no no meat. Um, and the well, we'll explain we'll explain what it is. I, I don't think you should do the Daniel diet, by the way. You can if you want, but um, I, I don't suggest it. All right, so verses 8 through 16. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs, and the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink, for why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your who are your age, then you would endanger my head before the king. So Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he contested uh, with them in this matter and tested them 10 days and at the end of the 10 days their features appeared better and fatter and flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies thus the steward took away their portion of the delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables okay so what's going on here is that daniel and his three friends dana daniel and azariah and mishael and hananiah are uh, called to um, by the king of Babylon, they're given this food and this drink, uh, this wine and and the these foods, these deli- delicacies of Babylon to to eat and to drink as their as their kind of diet, right? But the problem is that uh, those things, they're the meat especially, and um, it seems as if Daniel and his friends have taken some sort of vow um, concerning the wine, which is not totally uncommon for for God's servants. Um, that th- those things are unclean for for them, right? So these these Gentiles are known to eat pork, right, pigs, and amongst other things, uh, shellfish, right. Uh, this is 
going back to those those old Levitical laws in the in the Old Testament of what's clean and unclean, and the purpose of what's clean and unclean for them was to separate them from these pagan nations, right? To keep them holy, to keep them set apart from the nations. Now it's not as if they couldn't eat meat, right? They could eat some meat. Um, back in Genesis, right? Uh, Noah is given meat as as food that's good for him, but there are certain restrictions on the kind of meat they can eat, and we know that pagans o- often eat uh, pork in the ancient Near East, right? Pigs are one of the main uh, sources of meat for them, and so the requirement against pork and other and and meat that had blood in it and all these other kinds of uh, certain things. Uh, were were given to be unclean, and obviously that's what is being offered to them because they refuse to eat it, as things that are unclean to them. And so he, Daniel tells this chief of the eunuchs, who's the one serving the food, and the one who's kind of in charge of them, that uh, just give us the vegetables, right, and water, just give us uh, vegetables and water, and if we start looking like we're unfed, right? If we start looking skinny and 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 unwell, then uh, then we'll eat the food. But if after ten days we look healthy, compare us to the to the guys who are eating the meat, and if we look healthy, then let us let us just eat what we want. And he's like, they're basically like, okay, we can do that. Right, because as long as you look good before the king, I don't care what you eat, basically. And so, he, uh, they do that, and they end up looking better and fatter. Right, they actually gain weight um, than the people who are eating the meat. Now, the first thing I want to say about this is that this is a miracle. Right, it's portrayed as a miracle. Right, this is this is and. In the same way that Daniel is rescued from the the lion's mouths, in the same way that they're rescued from the fiery furnace, right? If it were not for God's miraculous working here, this would not have happened, right? Biologically speaking, if vegetables have way less nutrients and nutritional density than meat does, right? Um, and if you look at people on a vegan diet versus people on on a diet that includes meat, um, you you can see that vegans are generally actually extremely unhealthy people. Um, and I'm 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 willing to say that on camera. So uh, you know the 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 vegan activists can come after me if they want <laughs> later on. But um, just biologically speaking, it is a known fact that that fat and protein. Um, are very important macronutrients to one's body and that uh, these things um, make one uh, healthy. And, um, and and generally, another thing to point out here, by the way, is that in America, one of our problems is obesity, right? In fact, more people are overweight than are underweight, right? In the ancient world, obesity is almost never a problem. Right, because it, if if someone is fat, um, like King Eglon in the Book of the Judges, then that means 
he is extremely wealthy, right? Because he's able to afford um, an excess of calories, which basically no one can do. Like everyone's moving around constantly. Um, they're not eating processed junk food because there is no such thing yet. Um, they're not, I mean, that most people struggle to get enough calories in the ancient world. So that the fact that they're saying like they look fatter, this is a absolute miracle, right? That they're on this very restricted diet and that they, they gain weight. So the, the reason I want to point that out is because some people literally use this as like this, um, proof text for this. And then along with the, um, the garden of Eden that Christians should not eat meat. Christians should, should, uh, be vegans. Uh, there, there's all sorts of weird nutritional advice that, that certain Christians will take away from this. And the main thing I'm, I'm just trying to point out here is one that if you read the rest of the scriptures, that's not the purpose, right? God gives meat for food in Genesis 9 as well as um, makes all things clean in the new covenant. So we can eat our German blood sausage and we can eat our pork and our pork chops and all that stuff. And that's perfectly fine and good and right and salutary because God allows it, right? We're not living among pagan nations that, you know, um, have meat sacrifice sacrificed idols and all these other other such problems right we're not under that that old covenant um ceremonial law anymore but also it's just a total misreading of the text because it's supposed to be a miracle right it's supposed to be like the fiery furnace and the lion's den that they eat vegetables and somehow end up they eat only vegetables and end up somehow being healthier, right? It's a miracle. So <laughs> anyway, yeah, go ahead, Gary. Yeah, there's, that's, that's crazy. I'm sorry to hear that. Um, yeah, there are my understanding and this is a, a hot, like a hobby horse of mine. Um, not so much anymore, but I used to be very interested for some weird reason. I just got really interested in nutritional science and I, I studied it quite a bit. And um, I'm not claiming to be any kind of doctor or anything, but um, my understanding of the science is that there are certain micronutrients. So you have macronutrients, right? You have protein, carbs, and fat. There are certain micronutrients that you can really only get in animal foods that are pretty important for certain functions of the human body. So um, that's why I said I just don't think it's healthy to not eat any kind of, to, to refuse any kind of animal food. So, yeah. Yeah, I had a question about the age of Daniel and his friends. They probably teenagers and their faithfulness against the king who could lop their head off at any time. Yeah, they're they're young men and they're extremely bold and confident. So yeah, I, I mean I'm talking way too much about nutrition. Just talk about some of the theology, which is that they, like you said, they're extremely bold and confident for young men, right? Now in some ways it kind of makes sense because 
young men are like that. Right? It takes a, a young man to uh, be to to want to change the world and to be probably overly confident and zealous, right? In some ways, but but it is amazing, right? Because the Nebuchadnezzar is so powerful, right? I mean, Babylon is the most powerful empire in the world at the time. And Daniel and his friends just stand up to him like it's nothing, right? So it is uh, quite miraculous. And, and later on, we'll see multiple times, are they able to convince Nebuchadnezzar of multiple different things, right? This is similar to Joseph and Pharaoh in Genesis, uh, that ultimately, in some ways, Daniel ends up becoming the premier, like the second in command of, of the world for a moment, right? Nebuchadnezzar is much more fickle than Pharaoh was for Joseph, um, which is an interesting comparison. But I just realized what time it was. So we should end in a word of prayer, unless there's any final questions or comments. All right. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for this day. Uh, we pray that you'd bless our worship together in spirit and truth. And uh, we pray that you would help us to be more like Daniel and his friends, uh, to be bold and confident in our confession of faith in the midst of an unbelieving world. We pray this to your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.